salt acts as a preservative for meat and it adds flavor to food. But if it's rubbed into a wound, it stings. Light guides and reveals. But sometimes it causes discomfort when it's brighter than the eyes are accustomed to. And sometimes it reveals things that people don't want to see. And so while salt and light can be welcomed by some, it can provoke a hostile reaction in others. And we've seen that hostility toward the church throughout the book of Acts. At every turn, the church has faced opposition. And in the midst of that, uh, that hostility, an interesting lesson has emerged. In fact, it's a paradoxical truth. The church thrives under persecution. In Acts chapter 8, the church was driven out of Jerusalem by persecution. But in Acts 9.31, we read, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it continued to increase. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were driven out of Antioch. In Acts chapter 14, Paul fled from Iconium and was stoned in Lystra. And yet in Acts 12, 24, we read, But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. In Acts chapter 16, Paul was asked to leave Philippi. In Acts chapter 17, he was mocked in Athens. But in Acts 16, 5, we read, So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. When it comes to the spiritual realm, effectiveness and persecution go hand in hand. Because an effective church is a bold church. And boldness only arises in the face of opposition. Dr. Howard Hendricks says that the church represents the law of thermodynamics. The greater the heat, the greater the expansion. And once again, we see that in the city of Ephesus. Verse 20 tells us, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. But it wasn't without opposition. Some of it we're told about here. In verse 9, we're told that some of the Jews were becoming hardened and disobedient and were slandering the church. Other of the persecution we read about in other places in the Scripture. For instance, a little later, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, and he says, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8, Paul describes the affliction that he and other, others received at this point in time, and he says, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength and that we despaired even of life. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 4, Paul says that Priscilla and Aquila, who were with him at this time in Ephesus, risked their own necks for my life. And so in Ephesus, there was great persecution, and yet there was great growth, illustrating the principle that the church thrives under persecution. And this morning in our passage, we're going to see the persecution in Ephesus come to a head. It's going to burst out in a city-wide riot. And before describing the chaos of that riot, Luke gives us a brief note of Paul's plans in verses 21 and 22. 
Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, if you get out an atlas and analyze Paul's plans, they make absolutely no sense. They are a travel agent's nightmare. He says, I'm planning to travel 700 miles west to Macedonia and Achaia. Then I'm going to travel back those 700 miles, and then I'm going to go 700 miles east to Jerusalem. And then when I get there, I'm going to travel 2,000 miles west to Rome. You say, well, why would he make plans like that? Well, I can only think of two reasons. Number one is his pastor's heart. Paul had a burden for the church in Jerusalem. And in the church in Jerusalem at this time, there were some people who were very poor, in need of financial provision. And so Paul is planning to go to Macedonia and Achaia, get there a contribution from the Gentile churches, and deliver it to Jerusalem. A little after this, he writes a letter to the church at Rome telling them about his plans to come. And there in chapter 15 and verse 25, he says, But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul is willing to travel an extra 1,400 miles because he's got a pastor's heart. He wants to meet the needs of the people in Jerusalem. He also wants to bring about unity as these predominantly Gentile churches are giving to meet the needs of a predominantly Jewish church. But I think there's a second reason, and that is his evangelist's heart. Paul also had a burden for the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. And that's why in Acts chapter 20 and verse 16 we read that Paul was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Why did he want to get to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? Well, because on the day of Pentecost, Jews would come from all over the Roman Empire to be there, and Paul would have a greater audience of lost Jewish brethren to preach to. That was his evangelist heart. And then he said, I want to go to Rome. Now, why did he want to go to Rome? Well, because Paul had a burden for lost people. You see, Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire. It was the most strategic city in the world at that time. And Paul wanted to go there, not just to reach the multitudes that came to Rome, but to use those great highways to reach out to the western part of the empire. In fact, just as Antioch had been the base of operations for evangelism in the eastern part of the empire, Paul envisioned that Rome would now become his base of operations to reach the western part of the empire for Christ. And so Paul is willing to travel 4,000 miles back and forth because he had an evangelist heart. And this verse really forms the outline of Paul's traveling throughout the rest of the book of Acts. He will go to Macedonia and Achaia, and then he will go to Jerusalem, and then he will go to Rome, although not the way that he anticipated going. 
But in the meantime, verse 22 says, And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, why did he send Timothy and Erastus into Macedonia? Well, we discover the answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2. And there Paul says that he sent them so that there would not have to be any collections made after Paul arrived, so that they would go make sure the collections had all been taken and Paul could just come along, pick them up, and go on to Jerusalem. Now, why does it say at the end of verse 22 that Paul stayed in Asia for a while? Well, we find the answer to that also in 1 Corinthians. You know, it's interesting that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians at this point in time. In fact, he probably sent this letter by Timothy and Erastus. And in the 16th chapter, this is what he says. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, but I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Did you catch that? I'd like to come to you now, but I can't get away because there's a wide door for effective service, and I have many adversaries. There is a great opportunity amidst great opposition. Paul says, I can't leave now because there's too much opposition. Why would he say that? Well, because he understands the principle that the church thrives under persecution. And now in our passage this morning, we're going to see that persecution erupt into a city-wide riot. And we can divide this passage into three parts. The causes of the riot, the characteristics of the riot, and the calming of the riot. First of all, the causes of the riot in verses 23 to 27. And about that time, there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. Now, Satan had been trying to get at Paul for the whole three years he's been in Ephesus to no avail. And now this is kind of like a last-ditch effort. He's going to attack Paul with the entire city hoping at least to arrest him and hopefully to put him to death. And Luke states it as an understatement. He received no small disturbance. Verse 24, For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. Demetrius was a silversmith. He had a lucrative business in Ephesus making and selling silver replicas of Artemis. These little replicas depicted a rather hideous-looking woman with many breasts. Her Greek name was Artemis. Her Latin name was Diana. She was believed to be the goddess of fertility. These little replicas were used as household idols. They were also taken to the temple of Artemis in Ephesus and given as offerings to the goddess there. Demetrius made these little replicas along with the craftsmen in Ephesus, and so he calls the craftsmen together. He has a meeting of the trade union. This is Silversmiths Local 109. Why does he call them together? Well, because they are being hit in the most sensitive part of the human anatomy, the pocketbook. I had a fellow tell me recently about a friend who 
looked real forlorn, and so he asked him, what's the problem? He said, my wife just made me a millionaire. He said, why is that a problem? He said, I used to be a multimillionaire. <laughs> that gets a person's attention. And so Demetrius begins by saying, men, I don't have to tell you that our livelihood depends upon this business, and we've got a problem. Verse 26, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Our business is making gods. And Paul is saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And he's convincing people and he's turning them away. Turning them away to who? To God. What was happening in Ephesus is the same thing that happened in Thessalonica where we read in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 that they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And Demetrius says this is happening to considerable numbers throughout Asia Minor. And why is he such a keen observer? Because the greater the church grew, the smaller became his market. And so Demetrius, this ardent opponent of Christianity, is forced to admit that the preaching of the gospel was successful. Now I want you to take a moment and think about what it is that made the gospel so effective in Ephesus in Asia Minor. Did they stage anti-idolatry rallies? Did they boycott the silversmiths? Did they picket the temple of Diana? No. We saw it last week. In verse 8, we're told that Paul boldly preached the gospel. In verse 9, he taught other people. In verse 10, they went out and boldly preached the gospel. And they weren't just talking, they were walking. Because verse 19 tells us they burned their books of magic and separated themselves from their past sins. They were a purged church. And so they were boldly preaching the gospel and they were seriously living it out. And so they impact the entire province of Asia Minor for Christ. In fact, the conversions were so many and so dramatic that they were affecting the idol-making business. And so Demetrius gathers the craftsmen together and he appeals to them using three hooks, three arguments to stir up a riot. Number one is financial fears, verse 27. He says, and not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute. There's argument number one. If this keeps up, we're going to lose our jobs. You see, they have no concern for the souls of men. The bottom line for them is their profit margins. They remind us of the people in the land of the Gerizines in Matthew chapter 8. Remember, Jesus went there and cast the demons out of a man by the name of Legion, and those demons entered the swine, and the swine ran down into the sea and drowned. And you remember what the people did immediately afterwards? They asked Jesus to leave. It didn't seem to matter to them that a man had been delivered. What mattered to them was that they had lost a herd of swine. And so essentially they were saying to Jesus, we can't afford to have you here because you're too hard on our pocketbooks. 
Argument number one was financial fears. Argument number two was civic pride. And that's in the middle of verse 27. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless. There were two things that gave Ephesus its identity as a city. The first was it was a center of trade. It was located at the mouth of the Caister River, right where it opens into the Aegean Sea. And all of the rich farmlands of Asia Minor brought their goods there to be exported to other parts of the Roman Empire. But due to deforesting and overgrazing, the topsoil in that area began to wash into the river. And before long, silt had strangled the mouth of the river. And so that even at Paul's, in Paul's day, Ephesus was no longer the port city that it used to be. And I'm told today, if you go to the city of Ephesus, you can still see the ruins there of the harbor but it sits behind a swamp seven miles from the sea. This was already beginning to happen. They were losing their identity as the center of trade. But they had a second identity, and that was as a center of pagan worship. The worship of the goddess Artemis was widespread in the first century. In fact, it may have been the most popular of all the pagan cults. There were at least 33 shrines built to Artemis throughout the Roman Empire. But the greatest shrine of all was built in the city of Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And each spring they had a festival there to Artemis and people came from throughout the empire to celebrate that. And when they came, guess what they bought as souvenirs? They bought these silver replicas of Artemis. And so Demetrius is appealing to their civic pride. He says, not only are we losing the shipping business, but now Christianity is threatening to render the temple worthless. And then he makes a third argument, and that's on the basis of religious devotion at the end of verse 27. He says, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. Finally, he raises the possibility that the great goddess Artemis might be dethroned, that her majesty was at stake. You know, it's a pretty sad thing when the one you worship is vulnerable to be dethroned. And he says, if this keeps up, she might actually be dethroned. And so there are his three arguments. He appeals to financial fears, civic pride, and religious devotion. Was he effective? Look at verse 28. And when they heard this, and they were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. He whipped this crowd into a frenzy. And they probably looked something like the French when they won the World Cup. They were all just shouting out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Which brings us to our second point, and that is the characteristics of this riot. We see it in verses 28 to 34. There are three characteristics. The first is anger. Notice verse 28 again. They were filled with rage. That's typical of the way people respond to Christianity. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 54, the Jews were so angry with Stephen, it says that they were cut to the heart and they began gnashing their teeth at him. 
The gospel often produces anger because it reveals sin. And it forces people to recognize the inadequacy of their false religion. And it exposes the emptiness of their lives. And so the first characteristic of this riot was anger. Second was confusion, verse 29. And the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. The angry mob spilled out of the Union Hall into the streets. And it says they went to the theater. This was the large outdoor theater at the east side of the city. I'm told that the ruins are still standing today and that, that it would hold an estimated 25,000 people. And as they went along, they drug with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions. Now, Gaius was a very common name in that day, so it's hard to know exactly who he is, although we're told here he was from Macedonia, which tells us he's not the Gaius mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, who was one of the first converts in the city of Corinth. And he's not the traveling companion mentioned in Acts chapter 20 and verse 4 because that fellow is said to be from Derby. The other fellow here we know more about, that's Aristarchus. He would travel with Paul. In fact, he would be one that traveled with Paul all the way to the city of Rome. And in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10, we're told that he would share Paul's imprisonment there. Now, why did they grab Gaius and Aristarchus? Well, obviously, because they couldn't find Paul. They couldn't find Paul, so they grab whoever they can that's associated with him, and they drag them into the theater. Verse 30, and when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Paul courageously said, let me go in there. I'll rescue these two fellows, and I'll defend Christ in front of this crowd. But the disciples were pretty wise they realized that an angry mob of 25,000 people don't need to see Paul, the one that they're most angry with. And that, so they said, you can't go in there. Verse 31, And also some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. The Asiarchs were the Roman political leaders of the province. They also advised Paul to stay out of the theater, not just because it would bring about political peace, but as we're told here, because they were friends with Paul. It's an interesting little comment. Paul did not make enemies of every unbeliever. There was a group that was angry with him. Here we're told these Asiarchs were apparently unbelievers because they're not mentioned as disciples, and yet they were friends with Paul. He had made inroads into their lives, and they cared about him. Verse 32, so then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. That's a pretty good description. Most people had been caught up in this mob hysteria and they didn't even know why they were there. Reminds me of Benjamin Franklin's definition of a mob. He said, a mob is a monster with plenty of heads and no brains. That's what was going on in the city of Ephesus. It was characterized by confusion. And then the third thing that characterized it was closed-mindedness, verse 33. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, 
And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. The Jews put forward a representative at this point in time by the name of Alexander. Now, why did the Jews do this? Well, I can only relate it to one thing, and that is that the Jews knew that the crowd was upset because they were, their, their idols were being threatened. And so the Jews knew, since they were anti-idolatry, that they might be lumped in with the Christians and persecuted together. So they decide, we're going to have this guy, Alexander, stand up in front of the crowd, and he's going to explain to them that we are not associated with the Christians. So Alexander's assignment is, you stand up in front of 25,000 angry people, and you explain to them the difference between Jews and Christians. That's his assignment. It was not real effective, because verse 34 says, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. As soon as they recognized he was a Jew, they knew that he was anti-idolatry, and so they just began to cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it says they did so for nearly two hours which really underlines their closed-mindedness. They didn't want to debate the issues. They just wanted to drown out all the other voices. Which brings us to the third point in this riot, and that is the calming of the riot in verses 35 to 41. Verse 35 says, And after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said... Now, the town clerk was the chief administrative officer. He was equivalent to a modern-day mayor. He was the liaison between the city council and the Roman authorities. And in this incident, he proves himself to be a pretty savvy politician because he waits until the people have shouted for about two hours and worn themselves out, and then he stands up and quiets them and begins to reason with them. And he confronts them with three logical points to counteract Demetrius's points, three arguments against this riot. Number one argument is that these men pose no threat to Artemis, verse 35. And after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? He says, you've been shouting something for two hours that everyone already knows. I mean, what man doesn't know this? They agreed with what Demetrius said in verse 27. All the world worships Artemis. And everybody knows that Ephesus is the guardian of her, of her temple and the guardian of the image that fell out of heaven. You say, what's that? Well, that's an interesting remark because I think it indicates to us that probably a meteorite had fallen in or near the city of Ephesus. They saw it fall to the earth. They didn't know where it came from, so they assumed the gods must have sent it down here. They picked it up and looked at it and said, you know, it looks like a multi-breasted woman. This must be the goddess of fertility. And so they set her up, began to worship her as an idol, 
built a temple around her, and these are the little silver replicas that Demetrius and the others are making of this that fell out of heaven from the gods. Verse 36. Since, the, since then, these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. The city clerk says, our religion is built on undeniable facts. What are they? We've got the temple. We've got the image that fell out of heaven. And we know that everybody in the world knows and worships Artemis. So why get so upset when somebody differs with us because everybody knows we're right. Now, that was a great argument to calm the crowd. But nothing could have been further from the truth. Because what they called undeniable facts crumbled with the city of Ephesus. How many people do you know today that worship Artemis? Nobody in the world worships Artemis. Millions of people worship Jesus Christ. Second argument he makes these men have done nothing wrong, verse 37. For you, have, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. Even this pagan official testified to the character of the Christians. He says, they haven't robbed any temples and they haven't even blasphemed our goddess. Which again, I think, underlines the approach of the Christians. Their strategy was not to attack the false gods of the pagans. Their strategy was to promote the true God. And so he says, you've brought here men that have done nothing wrong, and since they've done nothing wrong, what are you doing here? Verse 38, so then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available, let them bring charges against one another. If Demetrius and the craftsmen want to bring charges against these men, that's what our courts are for. Verse 39, but if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. If it's a matter that needs to be resolved in front of the whole city, then let it be resolved in a lawful gathering of the city. In other words, there's no justification for this mob scene. And then his third argument we're in serious danger of losing the freedom of our city, verse 40. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affair, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we shall be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. If the Romans come in and wonder why we're having this huge gathering in the city, we have no explanation. We have no justification. And so he says, we are in danger of losing our freedom as a city to the Romans. And his arguments were persuasive because verse 41 says, and after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. And as far as we know, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen did not pursue the matter any further. Now, if you're like me, you're probably wondering why Luke chose to tell us about this episode and why he gave us so much detail on this occasion. I mean, why didn't he tell us about the time when Paul faced the wild beasts in Ephesus? I mean, that would be exciting stuff. Why does he tell us this account where the town clerk is the hero? 
Well, I can only think of one reason. And that reason is borne out in the first verse of chapter 20. It says, And after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he departed to go to Macedonia. That's interesting. It wasn't the riot that ended Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. It was the protection that he got from the city authorities that ended his ministry in the city of Ephesus. See, as long as there was healthy opposition against him, Paul said, there's a wide door for effective service. I can't leave. As soon as the municipal authorities came in and put protection over him and the opposition ceased, Paul said, I'm moving elsewhere. Why? Because he understood the principle that we see throughout the book of Acts, and that is that the church thrives under persecution. We're going to close, but before we do, I'm going to ask Jeff if he would come forward and uh, give you the opportunity to greet Jeff Miller, who was baptized this morning. And we'll do that after we pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that again reminds us of an episode in the life of the early church. And Father, I pray that we might not only understand this principle, but apply it. That if we're going to be effective for you, we have to expect persecution. And Father, when the persecution comes in our lives, cause us not to be the kind of people who run somewhere else, but the kind of people like Paul who says, I can't go anywhere because there are many adversaries and there's a wide door for effective service. Father, help us to minister with that in mind that in the midst of that persecution, you want to bear much fruit. And Father, cause us to be faithful and bold in the situations that you bring into our life, we pray in Jesus' name.